you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter as you're turning there. Let me say first that I am so glad that you are here, in particular if you are here this morning and you are suffering. But I do want to say that the type of suffering that Peter is speaking about and writing about in 1 Peter chapter 4 is not a a suffering that comes necessarily from uh, abuse or mistreatment from external circumstances. It's a distinctly Christian suffering. It's suffering because of our faith in Christ. So if for some reason that doesn't apply to you today, you feel overwhelmed by sorrows in this life, we just want you to know we're glad you're here. We see you. We would love to minister to you, to speak with you. If there's some way we can encourage you or pray for you, please come find me, one of the people on stage, after the service, one of our elders. We would love to pray with you and open the Bible with you and find out how we might walk alongside you in this time. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped if you follow along in a copy of God's Word. Even though our passage is going to be focused on verses 12 through 19 of chapter 4, we're going to pull two sections together. We're going to begin reading in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself. We're here speaking to us today. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now drop down to verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Father, we need your help as we turn our attention to your word. We know in these moments, weekly, the enemy seeks to distract us. He longs for us to be concerned with the cares of the world, And so snatch the good word from us. 
He longs for us to be distracted by what happened on the way here or last night, what needs to happen when we get home, and all of the responsibilities in our lives. He longs for us to be distracted by what somebody else is doing in the service. Father, we pray that you would help us now to focus our attention on your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of God as it has been decisively revealed in the word of God. I pray that you would help me as I preach your word, that you would guard my mouth, that you would encourage me as I seek to encourage these saints, that all of us would be built up by means of your word because all of us, pastors included, need your word and submit ourselves to it. We thank you, Father, for the gospel of God. It is the hope that we have in this life. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners. Amen. In his book, Open Windows, Philip Yancey highlights how in our embarrassment of pain, we seem to have forgotten a central fact which was repeatedly brought to his attention by Dr. Paul Brand, a missionary surgeon who headed the rehabilitation branch for America's only leprosarium. If, Brand said, I had one gift I could give to people with leprosy, it would be the gift of pain. After years of working with leprosy patients, Brand learned to exult in the sensation of cutting a finger, or turning an ankle while running, or stepping into a too hot bath, because doctors once wrongly believed that the disease of leprosy caused the ulcers on hands and feet and face, which eventually would lead to the rotting of flesh and the gradual loss of limbs. But as Brand observed persons with leprosy thrusting their hands into scalding water or sleeping while rats gnawed at their fingers, he discovered that most of the time, leprosy only numbs the extremities and the decay of flesh occurs solely because the gift of pain is absent to save them from destruction. Pain. Christian pain, Peter tells us, is the gift which teaches us that we are saved from destruction. It reveals to us and the world around us that we have broken from sin. It reveals that we have become strange to the world because we have made a break with sin So the apostle says, pain, Christian suffering should not be strange to us because we have become strange to the world. Notice first the purpose of Christian suffering. Look in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. As he exhorts them, Peter reminds these Christians, these Christians who have placed their faith in Christ and are now scattered throughout what we call modern-day Turkey and Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, that their suffering does not mean that they have been abandoned by God. They are, verse 12, beloved. They are loved by God despite their suffering. They are loved by God in their suffering. 
They are loved by God through their suffering. They are deeply loved by God. But Peter knows that their suffering, just like your suffering, will make them, just like it makes you, forget that. Peter knows that their suffering will either drive them away from God, where they will hate God for all of the miseries in their life, or it will actually drive them to God as they learn to trust Him in this pain-wracked world. So he reminds them of what they are prone to forget, and in so doing, teaches them what they need to know. And he models for us how to minister to those who are suffering as a Christian. The first thing that we are to do is to remind them that they are deeply loved by God. Brothers and sisters, you do not have to explain suffering to sufferers. You shouldn't. It actually runs the risk of minimizing their suffering. And you don't have to justify God because they suffer. You can't, because there are so many things that you do not know or understand about God's providential will in their life and in your life and on planet Earth. But you can listen and remind God's suffering people that they are beloved to God. They are loved by God despite their suffering. They are loved by God in their suffering. They are loved by God all the way through their suffering, they are deeply loved by God and they need to know that they are loved by God because all of the circumstances around them in their life make them feel that God is against them. He doesn't see, he doesn't hear, he doesn't care, he likes other people better. And if he loved them more, they would have different circumstances in their life. So Peter, like a good pastor and like a faithful Christian, rather than beginning by chastising or teaching, reminds them of what they need to know. Beloved, those loved by God, despite all of what you experience in this life, you are deeply loved by God. Perhaps you're here today and you feel overlooked. Overlooked by those in this room and overlooked by the world. Be reminded from the apostles' words, if you have trusted in Christ, you are beloved. You are one of God's precious children. Never does a day pass when your heavenly Father does not delight in you and rejoice over you. He loves you completely. He loves you more than you could ever have hoped to be loved. He sent his son to die for you. You are deeply loved by God. Peter reminds these Christians that they are deeply loved by God. And he tells them, verse 12, do not be surprised. That's the problem, isn't it? We are surprised. Just like they were surprised. They don't expect it to be this way. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Whereas non-Christians are chapter 4, verse 4, surprised when Christians refuse to join them in their depraved behavior... Christians, chapter 4, verse 12, must never be surprised. It's the same word in verse 4 as it is in verse 12. Christians are not to be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes into their life. There is to be an expectation that trial will come, that suffering will come, that difficulty will come, that there will be opposition because of their faith in Christ, that things will not always work the way that they want them to in their country, that people who know them will ostracize them and alienate them. That the people that they called friend 
will no longer be their friend. That people will look at their life and decide that it is weird and they will neglect them and alienate them and mistreat them. So Peter says, do not be surprised. The fiery trial that comes should not be one that surprised you because non-Christians are upset that you no longer participate in the life that you formerly lived. Look up at verse four. They're upset because you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and as a result, they malign you. Friends, Peter did not downplay their suffering because their suffering was not like the suffering of brothers and sisters around the world. One of the things that we can wrongly do is act as if we're not suffering or as if the suffering that isn't physical or doesn't lead into some type of difficult circumstance where we are certainly facing death is a type of suffering that isn't real suffering or significant suffering or hard suffering. Peter doesn't downplay their suffering and say, you know, just because you're not facing imminent death, you just need to kind of grin and bear it and gut it up. Peter says, do not be surprised. These are real trials. Slander, misrepresentation, character assassination, social alienation, scorn, mockery, gossip, all because of your faith in Christ were and are painful and they come with both short-term and long-term consequences that are both economically disenfranchising and psychologically damaging to people. Instead, he exhorts them and he says, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised as if something strange were happening when you experience a hostility for your faith in Christ and your very existence is frustrated because you follow Jesus. Verse 12, the, because the fiery trial is far from random. The fiery trial is actually designed by God, Peter tells us. It is designed with a purpose, verse 12, to test the quality of your commitment to Christ. As he did in the opening of the letter, Peter tells them that hardship is a purifying, improving fire. Flip over to chapter one, verse six. We remind ourselves at the beginning and the end of this letter what Peter is doing as he exhorts these people. And verses that sound very familiar and similar. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, it doesn't feel like a little while, sometimes it lasts a long while. What Peter has in mind is the little while that you live on planet earth in view of the long while that you will be with God forever in heaven. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's words, if we're honest, make us squirm a little when we read them because they highlight for us that there are lessons that the Christian must learn in the refining fires of suffering. Anybody who suffered any way in this room would have loved to have learned the same lessons that they learned in hardship a different way. That's true for you. That was true for first century Christians. That was true for everybody in between. Peter knows that Peter would, people would love to learn the same lessons without suffering. But he tells us that there are certain lessons that we can only learn 
through hardship. There are certain things that we can only see when we have suffered. There are certain ways that we will learn to appreciate what it means to be a Christian and who God is and what he has done for us because of the fiery trials that come upon us. But friend, if suffering is the door that you must walk through, be assured that you can take heart in the ways that God will use it for good in your life. Because as Peter teaches us, we learn the true nature of our faith when it is braced against pain and sorrow and persecution. One of the things that I see as a pastor often, not only in the life of this church, but just as I interact with other people, is that it is the pain in their life that turns them away from faith. Perhaps that's been your experience here, that the pain in your life has been the very thing that has pushed you farther away from God. Peter knows that that's a reality. And so he says, don't let that happen. Don't let the pain push you away. Instead, in those moments when you are tempted to be pushed away and walk away and turn away, actually lean in and turn toward God and embrace him. The hardships that come from saying marriage is between a man and a woman. The hardships that come between saying, I know you're my child, but you must repent and believe in Christ or you will go to hell. The difficulties that come that say, we love you as our family, but we're going to wake up and go to church on Sunday morning when you visit us, even while we're here, even if we don't see you all of the time, because we love Christ more than we love anything else on planet earth. The difficulties that come because you believe in Jesus and people at work think you're weird and overpass you for a promotion. The difficulties that come when your neighbors don't actually want to be your friend, even though they act like it and say, let's get together and never plan that get together because they don't want to be evangelized by you and they don't want to believe what you believe. The hardships that come because we have trusted in Christ and our hope is in another world. Don't let the pain push you away. That pain has always been there for the believer. Peter says, lean in in those moments and be reminded that you are beloved by God. And be reminded that it is God using those breath-by-breath breath moments of perseverance where sometimes it seems as if we don't know what to do, not only moment-by-moment, step-by-step, day-by-day, but hour-by-hour, and minute-by-minute, and second-by-second. And that it's in those moments that we learn that it's not only safe to trust God, but that our hearts can actually be lifted up as we are reminded that we are not the first to suffer and our Savior suffered for us. Friend, when you are weighed down with the sorrows of this life because you are a Christian, when your body is ravaged because of the pain of being a Christian, when your ears are assaulted with insult because you trust in Christ, be reminded that there is a purpose to the suffering, to refine and purify. But the question that we need to ask is to what end? The purpose of Christian suffering, notice second, the result of Christian suffering. I want you to skip verse 13 for a moment and look at verse 14. I believe in expositional preaching, we are going to come back to verse 13. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When believers are insulted, mocked, ridiculed, slandered, belittled, mistreated, scorned for their faith, and they embrace it without compromise, 
or cowardiceness. Peter says, verse 14, they are blessed. They may be, you may be insulted by others, but they are, you are blessed by God himself. As Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus' words, like Peter's words, make us a little uneasy because they not only teach us, but heavily insinuate that we will be reviled and persecuted and have evil spoken against us falsely on Christ's account because we follow Christ. Reproached, but blessed, because verse 14, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter's point is that the believer is blessed because they possess even now the glories that will be theirs at the end of the age. He's telling us that what is true of us in the future has broken into the present, and it is actually what sustains us in the present, not only giving us a hope of the future, but the ability to endure in the present. The future age has come to us in Christ. The Spirit now dwells within the believer, and we can have not only hope of heaven, but the assurance of things hoped for even now. Peter's point is to help us see what Isaiah the prophet was also teaching us in Isaiah 11. If you have your Bible, flip over there with me very quickly. Isaiah chapter 11, a familiar prophecy for many of us. The prophet writes in chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. According to the prophet Isaiah, the branch of Jesse, obviously Jesus himself for Peter, will be endowed with the Holy Spirit. But the wording of Isaiah 11.2 is especially important for us because Peter emphasizes the prophecy has now been fulfilled and the spirit that was upon Jesus now also rests upon the Christian. Believers who suffer are blessed because they are now enjoying God's favor. What is God's favor? It's not ease in this life. What is God's favor? It's not circumstantial in this life. What is God's favor? The reality of God's indwelling spirit, which seals you for the day of redemption and empowers you to not only put sin off, but helps you persevere as we look forward to the eternal day of God drawing near. Brothers and sisters, part of the reason that we are so disoriented in this life by suffering is that we fail to see because of the prominence of the prosperity gospel that God's favor is not circumstantial. I assume that you're here because you don't believe in the prosperity gospel. But I also assume that many of us here have in some small ways imbibed teaching of the prosperity gospel. And when life does not work out the way that we anticipate it, we're frustrated with God and we're upset with God. And we feel that God has been a harsh master because we fail to see that the blessing of God is not material, it's not relational, it's not circumstantial. 
is not to be found in this life. It's the indwelling spirit that seals us for the day of redemption and gives us hope of heaven. Believers who suffer are blessed because they are now enjoying God's favor. They are tasting even now the wonder of the glory to come. They are experiencing even now the promised Holy Spirit, the presence of God in their suffering. So the reality of our suffering for Christ, Edmund Clowney once said, becomes a pledge to us of the reality of our belonging to Christ. The reality of our suffering for Christ becomes a pledge to us of the reality of our belonging to Christ. That in itself brings joy to our heart and it strengthens us in hope. If like Christ we suffer according to God's will, we know that like Christ we shall enter the glory of the Father. Joy lies before us, the joy of seeing Christ in his glory in the great day when he will come again. Peter is constantly throughout this letter lifting their eyes and redirecting their gaze so that they look forward because the propensity of those who suffer is to not only look inward but to look at what is immediately around them and fail to see what God is doing in the long term. Brothers and sisters, we have to play a long game in our faith with Christ, an eternal game in our faith with Christ. There is sadness and there is sorrow and there is pain and it is hard and it is often more difficult than any of us is able to bear on our own, which is exactly why God gives you the church. If you're a believer here and you have not joined the church, please know that this church not only teaches church membership joyfully, proudly, and all the time, well, we believe that it is a moral demand upon your life. God requires that believers join the local church, that they submit themselves to the authority of the local church, that they participate in the life of the body of Christ, and that they would be used to not only be encouraged by, but to encourage others in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. God uses the body of Christ, just like Peter used his words in this letter, to lift our heads and redirect our gaze so that we might look forward because we're not capable of living this life on our own. Perhaps part of the reason things have been difficult for you is that you have not joined the church, but perhaps part of the reason things have been difficult for you is that you have not sufficiently immersed yourself in the life of the church. It is possible to be a member of a church and not be invested in the context of the local church. Brothers and sisters, what good is that? What good is it to have your name on the roll of a church and not use all of the gifting at your disposal? You literally have 127 other members who have been required by God to help you live the Christian life. So you can call them and lean on them and ask them to help you. And if you feel that that's weird, it's okay. Here's free reign right now. Don't let it be weird. Open your directory, pick one at random and call them and say, the pastor told me to. You're to bear my burdens. We got 30 minutes, here we go. The result of Christian suffering is the presence of the spirit bringing a foretaste of the future reality into the present. And one of the ways that God does that is through his people. We get a taste of that end time glory now when there will be men and women, young and old, from every tribe and tongue and nation as we immerse ourselves in that community now. And the end time glory, Peter tells us, is a present possession for the Christian. It's not holy future. We experience it now. 
the purpose of Christian suffering, the result of Christian suffering. Notice the exhortation to Christians suffering. Look in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? Real quick, just as like a sub-point to my point that this is what happens when you're preaching. You think of other things while you're reading. But if you're questioning now, what do I need to do to join the church? You actually heard our brother Isaac tell you what you need to do. You need to come to the membership class on June 12th. That doesn't make you a member, but you go to the class, you learn about our church, and then you can set up a membership interview. We would like to invite you to that class. If you want to come to that class, speak to Isaac afterwards. Isaac didn't know I was going to say this, but he's going to be standing at that door over there, and he will tell you what you need to know about that class if you have any questions. He'll be there for like 10 minutes after the service. And you can congratulate him because he and Emily are getting married on Friday. That's a sub-sub point to the sermon. Now we're in third point, the exhortation to Christian suffering. Peter's exhortation is largely a reminder to us right now in verses 15 through 18 of what he's been saying throughout the entirety of his letter. I want you to flip with me to chapter 2, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That there's suffering that comes because of our sin, and there is suffering that comes because we have trusted in Christ. Now look in chapter 3, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. There's a suffering for doing God's will, and there is a suffering for not doing God's will. There is a sense in which perhaps some of us suffer the consequences of sin in our life. But Peter is speaking about suffering that comes to us because of our belief in Christ. The difference this time, however, is that he provides some concrete examples of what he's speaking of, of sinful behavior. Look in verse 15 of chapter 4. And pay careful attention to what he highlights for us. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. It's a strange list, isn't it? Because it begins and ends differently than we would expect. He begins with what we know to be sinful. 
And he ends with what we think to be no big deal, meddling. He begins with what we know to be sinful, murder. And he ends with something like meddling because he knows how easy it is for people to rationalize punishments that are deserved and then just explain them away as Christian suffering. Whether blatant sin, theft, or inconspicuous sin, evil doing that we do in private, whether flagrant sin, murder, or annoying sin, like meddling, Christians should be those who do not suffer for wrongdoing that disgraces the name of Christ and invites mistreatment and acts tactlessly without social grace. And he teaches us that if God even cares about a meddling busybody who crosses social boundaries and cultural boundaries by prying uninvited into other people's affairs, he also cares deeply about all of the other areas of our lives as well. And the one who realizes that and lives accordingly, Peter says, has no need to be ashamed. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, not as a meddler, not as an evildoer, not as a thief, not as a murderer, but if they suffer as one who is a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Those in the early church did not call themselves Christian. They were mocked as Christians as being little Christs. It was a designation that was given to them by others. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. But clearly, Peter thinks that this is a badge of honor. To be called a Christian, to take that name upon ourselves, and to now live consistently with that name. We are to embrace that name and to live in that name joyfully and confidently and never put that name to shame. In fact, it is precisely in that name and for that name and because of that name that a Christian, as a follower of Christ, should suffer and glorify God. And if one rejoices in suffering for Christ's sake, one shows that one glorifies God and that the glory of God is more valuable than the praise of men and women and the comforts of this life and the safety that we might be able to provide for ourselves otherwise. As the women at the retreat learned, Colossians is my favorite book of the Bible. It is my favorite book of the Bible because of when I discovered it. And as I told them, I do not mean that I found a book in the Bible that did not exist before. I mean that I found a book that I had not paid attention to before. And that happened at a very crucial moment in my life, my first year of seminary. During that year, among thousands of seminarians, I was introduced to new people. I was overworked by reading new books. I was overwhelmed by lots of new information. And I was overawed by new styles of preaching and teaching that I saw. So I wrongly sought to distinguish myself by what I said and how I wrote and where I went and who I knew. And I labored to add something to my walk with Christ to mark me off as special, to differentiate me as unique. I would have the best papers. I would have the best ideas, the most right things to say. And it was in the midst of that identity crisis where I cared more about the praise of others that I found myself listening to John Piper speak about the impact of George Whitfield's preaching on both sides of the Atlantic in the 18th century and his longing for a coming generation of preachers in America who would emulate it into the 21st century. And he said, quoting Whitfield's biographer, yea, that we shall see the great head of the church once more, 
raise up unto himself certain young men whom he may use in this glorious employ. And what manner of men will they be? Men mighty in the scriptures. Their lives dominated by a sense of the greatness, the majesty, and holiness of God. Their minds and hearts aglow with the great truths of the doctrines of grace. They will be men who have learned what it is to die to self, to human aims and personal ambitions. Men who are willing to be fools for Christ's sake, who will bear reproach and falsehood, who will labor and suffer, and whose supreme desire will be not to gain earth's accolades, but to win the master's approbation when they appear before his awesome judgment seat. They will be men who will preach with broken hearts and tear-filled eyes, and upon whose ministries God will grant an extraordinary effusion of the Holy Spirit, and who will witness signs and wonders following and the transformation of multitudes of human lives. Mighty in the scripture, dominated by a sense of the greatness and the majesty and the holiness of God. Their minds and hearts aglow with the great truths of the doctrines of grace. And the one that struck me at that time, men who have learned what it is to die to self, to human aims, to personal ambitions, which only happens when we finally see the supremacy of Christ as is displayed in the book of Colossians and as it is articulated in Peter's letter here to us. Peter tells us that the most effective way to demonstrate that God is the preeminent treasure of our heart is by rejoicing in him and trusting in him when all other sources of satisfaction are stripped away. He's writing to a group of people who are not unlike you. Their faith in Christ has made them strange to the world. And now it is no longer comfortable to live in the world. And at every given moment, they are presented with a decision. Will you follow Christ? Will you follow men? Will you do this for the praise of others? Will you do this for the praise of God? Will you do this so that you can be special? Or will you do this because God views you as special and has set his electing gaze on you? Will you do this because you long for earth's accolades? Or will you do this because you want to win the master's approbation? And he speaks to them and he's encouraging them. Do not give up and do not give in and do not sell out. Suffer as a Christian, not as a busybody, not as an evildoer, not as a thief, not as a murderer, but as a Christian who's living a distinctly Christian life. Let me ask you, and this can't be answered right now, but are the hardships that you're facing in your life right now, individually, in your marriage, with your kids, your grandkids, your friends, or your neighbors, because you're living a distinctly Christian life, or because you've been living an unchristian life, and you're actually experiencing the consequences of your sin? That requires repentance. The other is a call for endurance. Friend, if you're here and you're sinning and you're experiencing the consequences of your sin, the call of the gospel this week is no different than it is every week. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ. If you profess to be a believer, if you don't do that, you've actually showed to all of us you're not a believer. If you won't repent of your sin and trust in Christ, 
then you're showing that you're not a believer, that you've never repented in your sin and you've never trusted in Christ. If you're here today and you think that you don't have sin to repent of, we're here to tell you that you're wrong. You're a sinner, you have sin, and your sin has separated you from God, your sin has alienated you from God, and your sin demands repentance. Repentance, and it calls that you turn away from it and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. That is the only way to be forgiven of your sin, to trust in his finished work where he died in your place on the cross. It, it is to receive a righteousness that is not your own because you're not able to be righteous enough. You're not able to be a person who's good enough to get to heaven. The only thing that you've ever earned in this life is the wrath that your life has merited, the judgment that is coming to you because of the way that you've lived it. And the offer of the gospel this morning is the way that it is every week. Jesus Christ bore your sins in his body on the tree that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Friend, trust in Christ. Trust in Christ and turn away from the unbiblical thinking that is pursuing things that are unchristian. Trust in Christ and turn away from the unchristian behaviors that have resulted in a frustrated existence. Trust in Christ and believe in him now for the first time and be born again by the Spirit of God. Friend, we invite you, come to Christ. That is the whole purpose of our gathering together. Reminding of our, ourselves of the beauty of what it means to come to Christ and calling other people to come to Christ because we long to see people walking with Christ. That's why Peter wrote this letter. And if you have questions about that, we'd love to speak to you. Come find me at the tunnel after the service. Like Peter, advocates in, like Peter advocates in 1 Peter and tells us, the most effective way to demonstrate that God is the preeminent treasure of our heart is by rejoicing and trusting in him when all other sources of satisfaction are stripped away. The purpose of Christian suffering, the result of Christian suffering, the exhortation to Christian suffering, notice fourth, the responses to Christian suffering. Now I want you to look with me at verse 13. But rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now look at verse 19. Therefore, the inference to what he's just said, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Instead of showing surprise and resentment when suffering comes, believers, Peter says, are to rejoice because in so doing they share in the very sufferings of Christ. They're to rejoice and give thanks that they have been counted worthy to suffer for his name as we see the believers in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. And when Christ returns, they will rejoice and be glad when they experience something that goes far beyond simple delight because they will then see clearly. They will see clearly that all of the suffering was worth it, that they did it for the renown of their Savior's name. They did it for the praise of his name. They did it for his glory. And as a result of that, as inheritors of that glory, they will now rejoice forever. It will go beyond simple delight because they will see then perhaps that all suffering in this life passes through God's hand. Did you notice how Peter said it in verse 19? Therefore, 
Let those who suffer according to God's will. He's reminding them, suffering's not random. It's not something that happens to you. Suffering is according to God's will. They are to entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If he created all things, he's sovereign over all things, which means he rules in all things, even in the sufferings of this life. All suffering passes through God's hand. That is meant to be an encouragement to you. Nothing has ever happened to you in this life apart from God's gracious will. There has never been one moment of your life that has occurred outside of God's providential plan for your life. The psalmist tells us that all of your days were written in God's book before there was one of them. That everything that has ever occurred, every word, every thought, every deed, every action, everything you've done, everything someone else has done, has come to you and it has passed through his loving, fatherly, tender hand, molding you into the person that you would never be apart from the sufferings of this life. Some of you have suffered greatly. And if we had time this morning, you could come up here and you could share how those sufferings, though you hated them, made you into a person that you could have never been. They made you believe in prayer. They made you trust the Bible. They made you trust in Christ. And they helped you see for the first time that this world is not your home, that this world is incredibly disappointing. One of the reasons that it's so hard for Christians sometimes is that they have not become sufficiently disappointed with the world. And Peter does a great job reminding us, you can be disappointed with this world, but you can be hopeful because there is another world that is coming. The gift of pain, Christian suffering, is not to be strange to us because we have become strange to the world. And as we endure it, we learn that nothing happens to us apart from God's will for our ultimate good, which is why Peter tells us to rejoice in God. You can rejoice because it is not accidental. You can rejoice because it is not haphazard. You can rejoice because it passes through his loving hand. You can rejoice because it is not capricious or whimsical. You can rejoice because he is sovereign through it all. And you can actually, while rejoicing, entrust yourselves. You can entrust yourselves to a God who is completely trustworthy, a faithful creator who is comprehensively sovereign over all the lives of all people in everything you've ever encountered in this life. He is a faithful, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and he will keep every single one of his promises. So Peter lifts their head and says, do not be cast down. These strange providences, do not be overwhelmed by them, Christian. Suffer with great joy, knowing that you will rejoice forever and ever. And he also teaches us that your suffering has been dignified by the Savior who suffered. Have you ever considered that Jesus in suffering, dignified suffering, showing us that our suffering is not something that is, we should look down upon and be ashamed as a result of it happening, but the Savior dignified it 
He is the one who suffered. And we follow in his footsteps. As he exhorts these people, he wants them to see that this suffering as it comes is not something to be overlooked in the context of the congregation. Notice how he exhorts them here as he speaks to them and tells them God never wastes the suffering of his children. Instead, he uses it to conform them to the image of Christ. Verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It's the way he speaks of the believers, the brotherhood, the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel? He has in his mind a contrast. There are those who obey the gospel, believers. There are those who do not obey the gospel, unbelievers. And then he says something that is strange for us. Citing Proverbs eleven thirty one, If the righteous is scarcely saved, not trying to create uncertainty, he does not say the righteous is not saved. He says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He wants us to see that we have never merited anything worthy of salvation, that the righteous are saved only by their faith in Christ. They're saved only by the grace of God and the belief in the Savior. And what will become of the ungodly and sinner? They will be separated forever to a Christless eternity. Friends, one of the most loving things we can do is tell you the truth of the Bible and tell you that what awaits you if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ is not non-existence but hell. Eternal conscious torment is what the Bible teaches. Separated from God, feeling his wrath, separated because of our sin, knowing his displeasure forever. Peter wants these people to see that in the midst of discipline in the context of the church where we actually disciple one another, we are reminding ourselves that there is judgment for sin. It begins with the household of God. We're to discipline and disciple and encourage one another to live distinctly Christian lives. But what will be for those who are outside and do not have the disciplinary structures of the church to walk alongside them and to say, that's wrong, that's sinful. They will be shown to be what they are, not God's children. For those of you who have found it hard and difficult when those walk, others walk alongside you to discipline and disciple you, know that that is a mark of what it means to be one of God's children. And for those of you who do not know that, we are here to tell you that when you're not disciplined, you're not one of the children because you don't discipline people who are not in your family. We must stop, brothers and sisters, dishonoring God by thinking that every time we suffer, he has lost control or dropped reign, the reins of sovereignty or isn't real. And as Peter has taught us, though we may, it may seem strange, our duty is to trust that God is a faithful creator who always has our best interests at heart. And we must stop using suffering as an excuse for sin in our lives. We must stop using the suffering of other people as an excuse for the sinful tendencies in our lives. We must stop using the sufferings of others on planet Earth as a reason for the way that we live our lives now, that it actually reveals to us the suffering when we're distinctly living distinctly Christian lives, that we are blessed. Brothers and sisters, let us persevere in the pursuit and practice of what is good and right and true because Peter says, even in the midst of suffering, right at the end of verse 19, notice what we're to do. Not be passive, but be active by doing good because the good deeds of believers are intended for mission. Brand discovered, discovery revolutionized medicine's approach to leprosy. And it teaches us, like Peter, that we are to thank God 
for the pain that we experience in this life. As we consider application of this text, let me give you seven quick applications. Undeserved suffering for doing good, first, is better than deserved suffering for doing evil. Undeserved suffering for doing good is better than deserved suffering for doing evil. Second, suffering is not a sign of God's absence, but of his purifying presence. Suffering is not a sign of God's absence, but of his purifying presence. Third, how believers respond to suffering is an indication of whether they truly belong to God at all. How believers respond to suffering is an indication of whether they truly belong to God at all. Fourth, there are actions that are shameful, murder, theft, evildoing, meddling, but suffering as a Christian is not shameful. Fifth, the one who creates is sovereign over all suffering because all suffering passes through God's hand. Sixth, we reveal that we are trusting God's will in our suffering by doing good. And finally, seventh, we need our best theology for our darkest moments. So Peter tells us, in the darkest moments of your life, if you get nothing else from the sermon, look at verse 13 and verse 19. Rejoice and entrust your souls to a faithful creator. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these, my friends. And we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We pray that you would write these eternal truths on our hearts. And Father, we ask that you would give us endurance in suffering, especially when we suffer as a Christian, and that you would help us to look forward in hope, we pray. Amen.